Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we covered the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. Hello and welcome to Understand Murdoch. I'm Nathan, one of your co-hosts, alongside Jocelyn. Jocelyn, today marked the 26th day of Alec Murdoch's double murder trial, and testimony from both sides has officially concluded. That's right. Jurors will soon decide Alec's fate. We've still got quite a few steps to get through before deliberations begin, which we'll explain in a bit. But first, can you walk us through what happened today inside the courtroom? Sure. So the entirety of today was spent listening to what's known as the state's reply case. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's essentially an opportunity for state prosecutors to call additional witnesses who can counter certain issues that were brought up by defense attorneys during their case. And how many did prosecutors end up calling today? They called six reply witnesses, five of whom had already testified in this trial, and defense attorneys weren't too pleased about that. What do you mean? Well, Creighton Waters, who's the lead prosecutor for the state, said yesterday he had planned to call four people. So bumping that up to six was a bit of a surprise, particularly in a trial that just entered its 26th day, as you pointed out. Defense attorney Dick Harputlian asked Judge Clifton Newman to limit in advance what prosecutors could ask these reply witnesses. Harputlian said that this process has got to stop at some point. Right, because at what point does this just become a never-ending cycle of prosecutors calling the same witnesses who will refute the same claims offered by defense witnesses? Exactly. And Judge Newman said prosecutors certainly couldn't just retry their entire case, but they do have the right to counter, you know, certain issues brought up in the defense's case. And he didn't issue any sort of advanced ruling. And so prosecutors moved forward with calling their reply witnesses. Okay, so who was up first? Jurors heard first from Ronnie Crosby. He's a Hampton-based personal injury attorney who was a former law partner of Ellick's. He was also quite close with Paul. And what did he talk about? Well, he disputed a couple parts of Ellick's testimony, actually. Creighton Waters began by asking Crosby whether he'd ever ridden his property or Moselle with Ellick and Paul. Which is what Ellick and Paul were doing the evening of June 7th, 2021, correct? That's right. Alec has said in many interviews and during his own testimony that they were riding around Moselle looking at food plots and evidence of hogs, which are nuisance creatures on farms all over South Carolina. Alec testified last week that he did some target shooting with a pistol that evening, but he and Paul didn't have any long guns with them. Crosby, however, said as a general rule, when riding around his property, he would always carry a rifle with him, day or night. And why is that? Well, he explained that hogs are seen as such a nuisance that you basically want to always be prepared. Hogs are often spotted at night, but he'll carry a rifle with him any time of day just in case he sees one. And rifles, like the 300 blackout rifle that Maggie was killed with, are most commonly used for hunting hogs. 
Then prosecutors also asked Crosby about the 2019 boat crash case. They did. And just as a reminder, this is the case in which Paul was charged with drunkenly driving his family's boat when it crashed and killed 19-year-old Mallory Beach and injured several others. Alec had testified last week that while he doesn't believe Mallory's family or any other passenger had something to do with Maggie and Paul's deaths, he believed the boat crash in general is at the root of their deaths, particularly given that Paul had apparently received threats on social media. So what did Crosby say about that? Well, prosecutors asked him whether Alec had ever told Crosby his theory that the boat crash had something to do with Maggie and Paul dying, and Crosby said no, that he hadn't heard him say that until last week. Did defense attorneys cross-examine him? Yes, Dick Harputlian did, and things between him and Crosby got pretty heated. What do you mean? Well, Harputlian brought up that Ellick had admitted to stealing millions of dollars from the law firm where he and Crosby worked, and Crosby said he's had to borrow money to help pay back those debts. And this is a process that's actually still going on a year and a half later. So Harputlian implied that Crosby was still very angry with Ellick and that his testimony today was influenced by those feelings. How did Crosby react to that? He seemed pretty upset. He said that's absolutely not true and that he takes his integrity very seriously and he'd never lie on the stand. Okay, and who took the stand next? That would be Dr. Ellen Reamer. She's a pathologist at the Medical University of South Carolina who was asked by the coroner to perform autopsies on Maggie and Paul. And she basically refuted the testimony offered by the defense's expert pathologist, who we heard from yesterday. Right. Can you explain to us their main disagreement? Yeah, it all comes back to the second gunshot wound Paul suffered, which both experts agree was immediately fatal. But their opinions differ in terms of the projectile's direction and path. Yeah, the defense expert testified Paul suffered a contact gunshot wound to the top of his head at a downward angle. Exactly. And Dr. Reamer believes the projectile traveled at an upward angle, striking his left shoulder first before entering his neck and exiting the top of his head. She believes that if Paul had suffered this contact gunshot wound, his entire head would have essentially exploded due to such a high amount of pressure and gas from that shot. But much of his face was actually left intact. Dr. Reamer also stressed that, unlike the defense expert, she had the benefit of examining Maggie and Paul's bodies instead of only looking at two-dimensional images to reach her conclusions. What did defense attorneys speak with her about? Well, this also became quite the testy exchange with Harputlian. Dr. Reamer said she wishes she'd taken more photographs during the autopsies given that her findings are now being called into question. But Dr. Reamer conceded she didn't do certain things during the autopsies, like taking x-rays of Paul's brain, for instance, because she'd already reached her conclusion and decided the extra stuff was unnecessary. I believe we heard from a new witness next. That's right. Prosecutors briefly questioned a man named T.C. Smalls, and he was the sheriff of Hampton County, which is where Ellick is from, for the last 16 years. And what did they talk about with him? Well, when Alec testified last week, he said several sheriffs in counties around the Lowcountry had given him permission to install blue lights in his personal vehicle. 
and he named T.C. Smalls as one of these sheriffs. But when Smalls took the stand today, he testified that he never gave Alec this permission, nor did he recall ever having a conversation with Alec about getting blue lights in his car. All right, can you break down the next witness for us? We heard next from Sergeant Paul McManigle with the Charleston County Sheriff's Office. He's a cell phone forensics expert who testified about Apple's raise to wake feature. And can you explain that to us? Yeah, it's basically designed so that if someone gently picks up an iPhone, the screen will automatically turn on. And Sergeant McManigal explained this feature in the context of orientation changes, which indicate how someone is holding their phone. He said that an iPhone will only record an orientation change when its screen is turned on. So the idea is that if raised awake is triggered, the phone would also probably record whatever orientation it's in? That's right. And this is important because Maggie's phone recorded a number of orientation changes after prosecutors believed she was already dead. And we know it was found the next day on the side of Moselle Road, indicating someone, probably the killer, left it there. Defense attorneys used the orientation changes recorded on her phone to hypothesize that Ellett couldn't have been the killer based on the fact his phone data places him inside the main residence at the time they believe her phone was tossed. And what did the sergeant say about raised awake? While prosecutors asked him to perform a series of tests using the same make and model of Maggie's iPhone to try and determine whether it would have recorded an orientation change had it been tossed from the window of a car. Remember that prosecutor's theory is that Alec threw her phone from the car as he drove to his parents' house in Almeida the night of the killings. And what did his testing conclude? Sergeant McManigle said that nine times out of ten, if the phone was thrown like a frisbee, its screen wouldn't turn on and therefore would not record an orientation change. And how did defense attorneys respond to this? Well, defense attorney Philip Barber established that McManigle didn't film any of his experiments, nor did he measure how fast he was moving the phone to try and determine some type of speed threshold to trigger the raise-to-wake feature. Barber attacked McManigal's credibility and expertise and the accuracy of his experiments given the apparent lack of documentation. All right, moving on to the fifth reply witness. Can you tell us about him? Sure. So that would be Mark Ball, another Hampton trial attorney who was Ellick's former law partner. And his testimony today was quite similar to Crosby's. In what way? Well, Ball said he's never known Alec to practice target shooting with a pistol, which is what Alec claimed he did with Paul on the day of the killings. And Ball has shot hogs many times on his own property at all times of the day. He seemed to agree with Crosby that he's always prepared with some type of long gun in case he encounters a hog when he's out riding around. Okay, we've heard a lot about hogs today. Why does this matter? <laughs> well, in addition to trying to establish Alec lied about shooting a pistol that day. I think prosecutors are suggesting he and Paul would have likely had at least the 300 blackout rifle with them when they were out riding around Moselle. And remember, prosecutors believe Maggie was killed with a family-owned 300 blackout. Got it. Anything else? Yeah, Ball also called into question Alec's testimony that he didn't trust the state law enforcement division, and that was part of the reason he had decided to lie to their agents about being at the kennels the night of the killings. 
Ball has known Alec for 34 years and said he has never heard him express this apparent distrust of Sled. Okay. Tell us about the last witness. Okay, that would be Kenneth Kenzie. He's a sheriff's deputy in Orangeburg County and a crime scene expert. The attorney general's office hired him to review this case. Uh, Speaking of that, the attorney general himself questioned Kenzie, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Alan Wilson asked Kenzie about testimony offered by a few of the expert witnesses called by the defense. Can you remind us what they concluded? Yeah, so one of them determined Maggie's shooter was between five foot two and five foot four, so quite short, especially compared to Alec, who is six foot four. They also believe Paul suffered a contact gunshot wound to his head and that two people, not one, carried out the killings. And did Kinsley agree with any of this? No. He said a six foot four person could have easily shot from the same angle as a five foot four person simply by backing up to add some distance between them and their target. And like Dr. Reamer, Kinsey said that if Paul had suffered a contact gunshot wound, his facial features would have entirely disappeared, whereas Paul's were mostly intact. The defense experts also seem to suggest that the shooter was inside the feed room when they shot Paul this way. But Kinsey and Wilson acted out this scenario using a courtroom door, and they showed how unlikely it would be for the shooter to have squeezed past Paul as he stumbled through the doorway and then shot him in his head. All right, that was a lot to learn from those six witnesses. I know we spoke yesterday about a juror trip to Moselle. Is that still happening? Yeah, jurors will do that first thing tomorrow morning. Judge Newman explained that they won't be allowed to talk to anyone during the viewing, and if they have any questions, they're only allowed to ask him. Jocelyn, I have to ask, how (laughs) close are we to deliberations? Yeah, well, after the trip to Moselle, defense attorneys and prosecutors will deliver their closing arguments. Then Judge Newman will formally charge jurors and deliberations will begin. So depending on how long all of that takes, I think they could begin deliberating as soon as tomorrow afternoon. But the more likely scenario is that they start first thing Thursday morning. Jocelyn, thank you as always. Thanks, Nathan. For more in-depth coverage of this trial, as well as the latest news on the Murdoch story at large, stay tuned to postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. You can find us on Twitter at Post and Courier.